This is Hannah Rose and welcome to the Inspire Within podcast. Hi everybody, welcome to a brand new episode of Inspire Within. My name is Hannah Rose and I'm your show host. I am so excited to introduce to you today's guest, Steve Magnus. Steve is an author of four books, including his latest release, Do Hard Things. On top of being an amazing author, Steve is also a performance expert, executive coach, and serves as a consultant on mental skills to professional sports teams, including some of the top teams in the NBA. He's an accomplished runner and has ran a four minute and one second mile in high school, which was the sixth fastest high school mile in US history. Wow. Thank you so much for being here, Steve. How are you? I'm doing great. Thanks for having me, Hannah. Yeah, of course. Uh, so I just want to take it back a little bit. So take me back to some of the early stages and days of your life. Where did you grow up? What did your upbringing look like? If you want to give like a high level on that and also really curious how you got into running originally too. Yeah, definitely. So I grew up in the suburbs of Houston, Texas. Uh, my mom was a teacher and my dad was an orthodontist and we lived a nice kind of upper middle class life in, in the suburbs. Just a typical suburban life, I guess. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, I was always an athlete. I think my I have an older brother and a younger sister and my older brother was always like academics and school and all of that good stuff. And I think to separate myself, I went in the total opposite direction Mm -hmm. where I did not care a thing about school or anything like that. It's kind of ironic. I'm an author now because I don't Mm -hmm. think I, I don't think I read a single book in high school or junior high or anything like that. So anyways, I got into sport or running um, actually kind of by accident. I was a soccer player who loved playing soccer and was pretty good at it. But I was only good at it because I was really fast and had a lot of endurance. Mm -hmm. And early on, like they told us, hey, you know, in junior high, go out for track and cross country. And I did and I did well at it, but it wasn't my thing Mm -hmm. until I got into high school. I started cross country. I wasn't training a lot, but I ran really fast. I think my first cross country meet. And I remember the coach coming over to me and said, Steve, I know you like soccer, but you need to quit that because you can be really good at running. And he said, I don't under, I don't think you understand how good you could potentially be. And he actually gave me some like in those days, like some, you know, DVDs and said, like, go watch these like athletes and races like you have the potential to do this stuff. And I think that just kind of really fired me up. And ever since then, I, I kind of threw everything else away and, and focused entirely on running. Yeah, no, that's really great to hear. And do you feel like when you, you know, pivoted from soccer to running, was it sort of a love-hate relationship at first? Were you like super passionate about it? How was that sort of relationship with running for you in the early stages? Yeah, yeah. So I think this is something that often people get wrong is we think like when we find something that we're, you know, we'll say it's our passion, it's going to be this like instant magical moment. Mm-hmm. But that's not how it often is. And and with me, it was the same. I mean, I remember back then, um, you know, that first freshman year in high school, 
I liked running. I grew to like it, but I was still kind of reluctant. I wouldn't, you know, I wouldn't train on the weekends when we didn't meet for practice. I wouldn't do things on my own initially because I, I wasn't like fully in love with it, but I think the more success I had, and then more so the more time I spent around my teammates and like got ingrained with kind of the culture behind the sport, the more I, I grew to love it and fall in love with it over time. So it, it definitely was a gradual process. Yeah, no, absolutely. And you said that, you know, it's a gradual process and coming all the way to from then to now, do you still run as often as you did? What does that like routine look like for you on a weekly basis? Yeah. So I don't run as much as I did when I was competing, uh, mm-hmm. especially back in those days, but I have a good relationship with running. I'd say it has just shifted from, you know, being a focus of how fast can I run or how do I get better to more as being something that it, A, is good and healthy for me, but also gives me kind of the space and time to just kind of be disconnected from the world and go you know, outside and spend some time running in some trails. And it's just kind of almost like my meditative moment. So I Mm -hmm. still, I still run probably five, six days a week. It's just not as much. I I try and get in between, you know, sometimes as little as 30 minutes, sometimes as much as an hour. And it's just, you know, my, my kind of time to process and, and figure out things. Yeah. And it must feel so good to like, take that pressure off too. Like you're not doing this to get a certain time or run a certain amount of miles, like you're doing it to feel good and to be in a meditative state to get outside. And even if people aren't like into running or anything, just being able to go for walks and get outside and just do it for your mental health is really, you know, just as important, if not more important than your physical health. You're spot on. And I couldn't agree more is I think, especially in today where we're always connected and which can be a good thing, but it also leads to some bad stuff. I think having something, whether that's running or going on a bike ride, or even as simple as like going for a walk or, you know, in my case, I always also take my dog for long walks. Yeah. Um, it's just great to, again, get away, disconnect and be outside. And I think that's uh, a simple thing that we can do that is huge for our mental health. Yeah, absolutely. I can totally relate to that too, because even now, like my job is hybrid. So being remote some days, working nine to five, I'll like look down at my Apple watch and realize I've gotten like a hundred steps today, which is absurd. So I have to get outside. My poor dog is like waiting for me to take her out to go pee. Like I just, it's important to make sure that even if I have to like schedule it into my daily meetings and everything, like go outside, walk the dog or go for a jog or hit the gym for an hour during a lunch break. That's just like so necessary during these times, I think. Yeah. This is why I love dogs because mine will (laughs) remind me if, if I haven't taken them out for a while. So, but, but, but in all seriousness, I think you've hit on something that we're going to face more and more Mm -hmm. as we transition into like these hybrid workplaces is often when we work from home, like there's no boundary or barrier. So we forget to schedule the things that we might when we went to the office. You know, when we went to the office, we might think, oh, I have to get up early to exercise or on the way home, I need to stop at the gym or whatever have you. You had to be intentional. And mm-hmm. I think now in this hybrid workplace, often like everything gets melded between. So we forget to, you know, be intentional on those small things that really matter. 
Yeah, for sure. And what is your take on remote work or like in-person work right now for a lot of corporate offices or, you know, entrepreneurs leading a team? Yeah. So I think there's some great benefits. I mean, it's like anything, there's great benefits and then there's downfalls to me Mm. is it's understanding the benefits of it. And then just saying, okay, what can I put in place to, you know, uh, minimize the weaknesses of this? So remote work is great because flexibility, it also means we don't waste a lot of time in traffic and all that stuff. Often it can lead to better performance because you get to create and set up your environment if you have that. Although mm-hmm. for some people, like they don't have that, maybe that space to, to do so. But the, the downside is this, is that often for team cultures or organization cultures, what really creates that is the in-between times at work. Mm-hmm. So the getting coffee with your, you know, workmates, the after hours, like happy hour, the water cooler talk about like the latest TV show or whatever have you, like research really shows that those in-between moments are how we get connection and cohesion. Mm-hmm. And we don't have those when we're at home and we're on Zoom. So that doesn't mean like, oh, forget Zoom. It just means you have to be intentional on, okay. We're losing a little little bit this when we have hybrid workplace. How do we maybe create this and foster this in unique and different ways Mm -hmm. so that we don't lose this thing that is really important? Yeah. And that's why I think hybrid is so great too, because you have a mix of both. I mean, I find like productivity when I'm home, just working from home is really great. I'm able to, you know, set my schedule and I have like a quiet desk and everything, but also going into the office too, that, you know, you can't have those coffee chats and water cooler chats and go grab lunch or just something casual that you would obviously if you're home. So I appreciate your take on that because I know that, you know, some people want to be fully remote. Some people want to be fully in the office. So I just like to ask people because everybody has a different take, I would say. So yeah, just wanting to pivot a little bit to your latest release, Do Hard Things. I'm so excited to talk to you about this. How long have you been working on this book and how's it been going since you released it? Yeah. So it's funny. Books take a long time. I I, I went back for every book. I start like a new just kind of notebook where I start sketching out the ideas. Mm -hmm. And there are my my notebook for this book began in late 2017. So you think you think of like five years of thinking about something and it's finally out. out. But it's been going very well. The reception has been fantastic and sales have been good and all that good stuff. So you know, when you never know when you release a book out into the world, what'll happen. It's it's kind of a crazy space, but it feels good because your goal as a writer and as an author is you're trying to help people. So the more people who read it, the more people you're potentially helping. So in a lot of ways, you know, it feels like your your goal, the goal has kind of been met and I'm I'm continuing to hopefully push that even further. Yeah, that's amazing. And it must, it, it's so admirable to, you know, feel those feelings and go through all that on your own and then want to share that and publish it for the world as well. So just like before Do Hard Things, at the beginning of your journey as an author, how did you know that you wanted to write and, you know, produce this content for people to gain something from it? Yeah, as I said at the beginning, writing and reading actually didn't come naturally for me. Mm-hmm. I would say it wasn't until I was, you know, maybe, uh, my senior year in college, I, I started taking an interest in this stuff. But to, to me, it's really almost like I love wrestling with ideas 
and then figuring out how to translate ideas into actionable steps for people and almost disseminating knowledge. So for me, when I was first getting started, it's almost like I would wrestle with an idea, wrestle with an idea, and then look and spend a lot of time looking for something that you know maybe would give me the answer and maybe solve the problem I was trying to figure out. And oftentimes when that wasn't the case, that was the indicator. And initially that was the push. It's like you write the books that you need. So if the book that I needed wasn't out, it's almost like I felt this 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 pull or this push to like, okay, I've stumbled upon something that hasn't been covered in this way. Maybe it's on me to cover it. And that really kind of, because it creates that personal connection, because every book I've ever written is something I've kind of struggled with or and, and really fought with. Mm-hmm. So it's like, how do I solve this problem? And that provides that fuel so that you can last the five years or whatever it takes you to, to get it out into the world. Yeah, no, that's so incredible. I think that a lot of times people want to write a book if they're an entrepreneur, if they've been through something super challenging, but it's like, where do I start? Do I just put a pen on paper and see where it takes me? Like, what was that first step for you when you realized that you wanted to be an author? Yeah. So for me, it was really, you know, the key to a book lies in the research. And for me, the outlining, um, I'm the kind of person who wants to jump straight to like pen to paper. Mm-hmm. But what happens is then it just turns into an incoherent mess. So, so like for me, it's almost like I dive deep into the topic, both from my personal experience, from like research and studies, and then also trying to interview and talk to people who might have a unique say or unique views in that. And I just, it's almost like accumulating information. And as you accumulate information, you almost have this point where you start to see things not as this jumbled mess, but you start to get some clarity around it. And that's always my indicator of like, oh man, I might have a book here because I'm starting to like the seas are parting. I'm starting to see things a little bit more clearly and figure this thing out. And whenever that happens, I get excited and motivated. And that's often the kind of push that gets me over the hump of like, okay, I think I have a book or I kind of want to write a book, but, but then you have that moment and now you do. So whenever people, you know, struggle with or come to me and they're like, Hey, I want to write a book, but I'm struggling with this. I always tell them like, go back to the research and outline, like dive deep into that until you get a little bit of clarity. And then that's your signal to, okay, start the writing process. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. And what was the challenge or struggle that you went through that led you to say, okay, there's a gap in the market. Let's write, do hard things, or let's just start this process. Yeah, that's a good question. So it it really happened with a couple of things in my personal life. I think first off, I was going through a really hard time in in the sense that I was a I was a whistleblower for a really big anti uh, drug anti doping case in sport. And it was really challenging. And my mentality was almost to like compartmentalize and just like kind of put my head down and bulldoze through it. But it took nearly 10 years of my life. So you can't just like compartmentalize and bulldoze through something that's going to take nine, 10 years. So eventually, you know, at some point I realized, hey, this isn't working. I need to figure out a better way to manage and cope with this like challenging time so that it doesn't kind of take over all of my life. And then on the second side, 
I was working a lot in sport at the time. And I kept realizing and seeing like almost like what I'd call these old school leadership or coaching styles, which were very like fear-based um, styles. And they tended to backfire. And I tended to see, you know, some athletes would survive and maybe they thrive, but we lose a lot of people who were very talented and very capable because like they just didn't want to be in this negative environment. And to me, you know, it's like if you're losing talented people and not optimizing every, you know, trying to optimize everyone, then it's not the right approach. So it was really these two kind of contrasting things in both my work life and my personal life that made me want to dive in and say, hey, is there a better way to, to handle, you know, adversity, stress, you know, and doing difficult things? Yeah. And that's so important, too, is that taking you know, the stress of everything that you went through in those two separate situations and being able to, you know, cultivate it into something so positive where not only was it probably very therapeutic for you to go through that experience, but also being able to share your message and, you know, have people read that and relate to it and, you know, want to be inspired and kind of move from there with everything that you wrote. So I think that's really great. Um, and in Do Hard Things, you talk about so much, so many different topics, including navigating discomfort, building a quiet confidence, navigating grief, um, you know, designing a culture in any capacity to thrive and not survive. If there is, I know this might be a hard question, but if there's a, one main takeaway from this book, for your audience or for your readers to, you know, kind of take out, what would that be? Oh gosh, that's a good <laughs> question. Um, it's so hard to narrow it down because again, books are your babies, but you know, I think the, it, this might seem like very simple, but I think it, it's, it's so true and so powerful in the sense that there's so many different like leadership or mentoring or coaching styles but what it really comes down to is people do their best when they are put in a situation where they feel their psychological needs are met, where it's a positive environment, where they feel like they can grow and get better. So to really like, you know, get the most out of people to allow them to do incredibly challenging things, it's often just very simply like treating them like a decent human being like show that they're cared and supported show that, yeah, they might struggle, but they have some sense of security and it's not like life or death for most situations um, that they can get through these things. And if you just kind of give that support and care, like people are going to, to thrive. And so often we get it backwards and we, again, use almost like fear, punishment, et cetera, as motivators. And they, they so often backfire. Yeah. So not putting that, if, it, if you're a coach or if you're a boss, not putting that sort of negative pressure on people that you're leading and really just encouraging them to kind of rise up to the challenge and be in an environment where they feel like they can, you know, psychologically take on these things and feel safe within that environment too. It's so important. Um, instead of that pressure and, you know, I think constructive criticism is so important too, but the way it's delivered and everything like that, just feeling like you're in an, in an environment where you can communicate with your boss or your coach or your leader is so important. And I think you kind of hit the nail on the head with all of that, with what you just mentioned. Um, and then one pillar in your book, you go through these four pillars. So it's ditching the facade, embracing reality was the first one. The second one is listening to your body. 
The third one, responding instead of reacting. And the fourth one, transcending discomfort. The first one really stood out to me in the sense that ditching the facade, embracing reality. We, I mean, I'm a 23-year-old young professional. And I think that social media is one of the things that there's a huge facade on social media that, you know, it can be stressful to me. I know going on TikTok or Instagram, there's like influencers with this huge facade all the time. You know, if you're not doing something a perfect way and have a perfect daily routine, then you're doing it all wrong. Would you say that kind of is, you know, encapsulated within this one pillar? And if you can kind of go over it in a high level, that would be great. Yeah. You know, I really feel for your, your generation. I'm a little bit older, but it's, it's, (laughs) it's tough because what happens is our environment and those we're around and what we're seeing set our expectations, whether we like it or even know about it or not. So when we go on social media and we see, you know, perfection, this facade, what it does is it sets unrealistic expectations. And what we know from, again, decades of research is if we go in with this perfection mindset or this incredibly high expectation that probably isn't attainable, well, the moment that you know we, we can't get there or the moment that we can't measure up, it's almost like our brain spirals out of control and says like, oh, what's the point? Like, I'm never going to be as good as this person on, on Instagram or TikTok. I'm never going to be a, as as pretty, beautiful, et cetera. I can't measure up. And, and it puts us in this motivational state where it's like, why try? So I think that's really difficult in this modern times. And that's where I, again, I, I, this whole pillar is about embracing reality, which reality is messy. It is not the perfect, you know, Instagram filtered picture, video, et cetera. It is that sometimes we're going to fail. Sometimes we're going to lose. Sometimes we're going to take on difficult challenges that we put in, you know, weeks, months, years preparing for and still not come out, you know, as we need it or as we'd like it to be. And I think if we can acknowledge that and reframe and reappraise things as, as they should be, not sugarcoating it, but saying like, hey, like this is the reality we face. We're in a much better spot to handle things than if we just kind of go in and and have this again, almost like false reality that shifts our expectations to a very unrealistic unreal- point. Yeah, no, absolutely. I think you know, there's obviously such great things about social media, and it's really necessary in this day and age to promote your business or promote yourself or whatever you're doing, your book. But you know there is such a negative facade to a lot of what you see. So like you said, just being able to embrace reality, there's so many nuances of reality. There's challenges. There's things that, you know, will never be posted on social media and the perfect influencer's life. So just being able to kind of deep dive into your own reality and set your own goals and expectations. I think, you know, that's what you're saying. And that's really important too. Um, And if you are working So just another question, if you're working with a new client doing performance coaching or one-on-one coaching with them, and they have these, you know, goals and expectations for themselves, do you take a look back and a step back at, you know, a holistic approach of their life? What's kind of that first step for you when you're working with somebody new? Yeah, I like to take a holistic approach, meaning, you know, often our problems, our issues, like aren't isolated, they stem from other things. So we look at everything, which is like, you know, what's your work life look at? What's your personal life? Like, 
How are you in terms of like exercise or movement or just going on walks? Like, how are you at disconnecting from work or disconnecting from social media or what have you? What are your daily habits look like? And I think when you look at a holistic approach, again, like often what happens is we see the small little problem instead of zooming out and saying, okay, if we often the small problems take care of themselves if we meet these greater, bigger needs and have these almost like our life in alignment. You know, where are your relationships? Are they all online? Or do you have like friends, you know, that you see on the day to day? All of these things matter. And all of these things are, are items that, you know, don't just matter for our current times in 2022, but you know, are part of being a human. So it's about making sure that those are fulfilled. Yeah, absolutely. And in regards to just like tips that you would give to specifically to young professionals or young athletes emerging in their career, what do you think is the biggest thing if people are struggling with confidence or self-doubt when they're trying to, you know, embrace a new chapter for themselves? Yeah. So what I would say is uh, one of the best things you can do is find a good mentor who's been through the run, you know, been through it because often again, they can kind of put that reality on you. They can say, okay, yeah, I've been in this situation. I understand what you're going through. I went through these same struggles, but here's, you know, here's how a, you get through it, but it's also normal. You know, I think often for young professionals or even young athletes, again, our expectations aren't aligned with reality because we've grown up in an age where it's almost like, We've had these false ideas kind of imprinted upon us. So anything that you can do to get perspective, which is one, a mentor does really well, but other things that will give you perspective in life as well. in the sense that make sure, for example, another tip that I like to give is like, make sure you have some diversity in your life and your pursuits. Meaning often we think, you know, when we're young, it's like, oh, go all in on work, go all in on work. But often what that does is it makes us fragile because if we quote unquote, you know, fail at one thing at, at work, it's almost like our identity, our sense of self gets taken down a notch when, re- when the reality is it's just one part of work, right? Mm-hmm. So if you have these other things in your personal life, other pursuits or hobbies, like if you have that, you're not as you know fragile, you're more robust and maybe that work life or pursuit life or whatever it has you. And it's not the end of the world if something goes wrong. Yeah. And do you feel like you learned a lot of, you know, those tips from a mentor in your own life or how did you come across, you know, being so knowledgeable and being able to help so many people? Oh yeah. I mean, mentors are, are huge. I would say it's pretty simple. It's like, Mentors are great. How do you find a good mentor? I get asked this all the all the time. It's it's being curious and doing interesting things. And if you do that, like, and you reach out to people with some experience, they're going to be way more accepting versus you know if you just say, "Hey, can you mentor me?" So yeah, like bring something to the table. And then mm-hmm. the other thing that I think is really important is um, is reading. And, you know, in this case, like, you know, reading includes audiobooks. It includes listening to like long form podcasts and podcasts like this is if you have that kind of growth mindset or that curiosity, like that also gives us experience. I, f- I forget who it was, but a, um, an author once wrote this and it stuck out in my head and it said like the, 
the things that you read become the voices in your head because like they shape your experience. So if you think of, you know, reading or listening to a book, like that gives you that diversity of experience. It gives you some, whoever wrote that, their perspective on something. You don't have to agree with all of it, but if you can like take in that information, again, it gives you a wider berth or a more diverse set of skills that you can then pull upon um, when it's necessary. Yeah. And I'm sure so many people can, you know, have that voice of your book after they read it too in their head and just be able to take that with them throughout their day too. So I really appreciate you sharing all of this. Thank you so much. Um, just to leave us off, I'm really curious to know, where do you see yourself going in the next couple of years? Any new books that we should look out for? How does that look for you? You know, that's a good question. Um, writing a book is like, it. it's, it's, very time consuming. So after this, I will have a vacation, Great. but then, <laughs> but, but then I am sure I will get back uh, to the work. I've got a couple notebooks filled with, you know, the starting of ideas. So hopefully one of those turns into the next book. Yeah, that's very exciting. Well, I'll keep a lookout. And thank you so much for your time. I really appreciate all the advice and everything that you've provided to me and the audience here. So thank you so much, Steve. Thanks for having me, Hannah. This was a blast. Yeah, of course.